Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power and work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't think I'm alone in this, but one of my chief difficulties in praying uh, are distractions. And usually they're self-distractions. Usually it's not things that are coming to me from the outside. They're ways that I distract myself. So I'll sit down to pray and then then something will catch my attention. And it's made worse because I, I do a, much of my Bible reading on my phone. And there are all sorts of things on my phone that can distract me. And I also have a prayer app on my phone that I use sometimes. And it's, it's helpful and I can update it and keep track. But also there, there are lots of other things that are calling for my attention on my phone. So I'll try to pray and then I get distracted. Now sometimes those distractions are fruitful distractions. It may be that as I'm praying, I think about somebody, and so I decide to text that person a note and say, how are you doing? I'm praying for you. So it can be fruitful, but oftentimes I'll find myself wandering in places that have nothing to do with what I've been praying about. I see some smiles. I think I'm not the only one that experiences that. Well, Paul had a distraction in prayer, and we saw that distraction last week, although his distraction was a very fruitful distraction. If you go back to chapter 1, the the first verse, Paul says, for this reason. Now we have to back up. For when he says, for this reason, we need to back up and find out what the reason was. And the reason was that God has brought Jews and non-Jews, Jews and the nations, Jews and Gentiles, into one body in Jesus Christ. And then he says, for this reason, in verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he, the word Gentiles just, just took him off in a distraction. And so what we saw last week was in verses 2 to 13, he reflects on the mystery of Christ. And what is the mystery of Christ? Not just that the Gentiles would be included somehow under the Jews in God's plan, but that the Gentiles, the nations, would be made co-equals, one body co-heirs with God's ancient people, the Jews. And that was the mystery. And so he he revealed to us this mystery that has been revealed in Christ. And now he goes back, and we noted last week how you can read verse 1 and verse 14 seamlessly. For this reason, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now he gets on his knees. This is what he meant to do back in verse 1, and now he gets to his prayer after this very fruitful interruption, uh, this, uh, this digression about the mystery of Christ. Now, it's interesting that he says here, 
I bow my knees to the Father. This is his posture in prayer, but it wasn't the normal posture in prayer in those days. The normal posture in prayer in those days would have been, among Jews and others would be standing. But here he says, I bow my knees to the Father. And he's emphasizing his subjection, his submission to the Father. But at the same time, what does he call God? He calls him his Father. And so we have this interesting combination that we find in the Lord's Prayer as well, don't we? Our Father, intimacy, closeness, personal relationship, who what? Art in heaven. We better get on our knees, folks. He's our Father. We embrace Him with intimacy. He is the one who is in heaven. He is God. And so we show our subjection to Him as well. He also recognized that God's fatherhood is the the archetype. It's the pattern. If there is any fatherhood anywhere... It is because it is some sort of a reflection, maybe a poor reflection, a broken reflection, but it is a reflection of the fatherhood. Uh, He says here in verse uh, 15, from whom every family, and we we lose a little bit, it's every patria, every every father father structure, uh, every father structure, every family is, is named... Uh, as a reflection of that that eternal fatherhood of God. When I when I first became a Christian, I thought, oh, isn't that neat that God is a father? Like 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 we can use use our category of father and and project that to God. But no, it's the other way around. I should be saying, isn't that amazing that we get to to feel and experience and exhibit a little bit of what it means to be a father, as God is father to Jesus Christ and father to His people. Now, the main petition is in verse 16. This is what he wants to do. He's on his knees and is reporting what he does. And he's reporting his prayer. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Then verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. That's the prayer. What is Paul asking? That you may be strengthened with power. And the rest of this section are are qualities of this strength, the means of this strength, the the, the focus of this strength, the results of this strength, but that is the basic idea. He's praying that we would be strengthened with power. And first of all, we have the measure of that strengthening, and it's according to God's glory. Verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, one of his favorite words in Ephesians, riches. I don't know how many times, maybe five times he mentions riches. So that's the measure of the power. It's according, it's not a little power. It's power according to the riches of his glory. That's the kind of strengthening he wants us to have. The, 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 the agent, not surprisingly in Ephesians, the agent of this strengthening is the Holy Spirit, that you might be strengthened with power through his spirit, and the location of the strengthening is in the inner being. The inner being. Now, there's not a, a very very precisely developed psychology in the New Testament, but there is this recognition that we all sort of have the sense of that there is the inner being and the outer being. And Paul in in 2 Corinthians, uh, where is it? To 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, the outer man is wasting away, but the inner man, the inner person is being renewed day by day. And so that's what he's referring to. There's a strengthening, even if our if our physical strength is waning as we get older, there can be a, an ongoing strengthening of the inner person. And that's the prayer here. 
Now, what's the, res- what's the result? Verse 17. And this is how Paul often structures his writing, and here his prayer is structured this way. So there's the, the main idea, and then there's a result that leads to a further result that leads to a further result, and that's how it is. So the result of the strengthening we have in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your heart, hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And this is interesting because it's a prayer that Christ would dwell in the hearts of Christians. That Christ would dwell in the hearts of Christians. And we've already read in Ephesians that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, right? And so, and here he's praying that Christ would dwell in our hearts. And you might think, well, isn't Christ already in the hearts of Christians? And the answer is yes, but here's Paul praying that, that we would be strengthened, that Christ would further dwell, that, that, that more of that dwelling would, would somehow be experienced by us. Um, and Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Now, the normal expression, that's not the normal expression in the New Testament. The normal expression is that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It's, it's an uncommon expression to talk about Christ dwelling in us. But because of the, 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 the unity of, of Spirit and Son, it, it's possible to talk about the Spirit dwelling in us or possible to talk about Christ dwelling in us or even possible to talk about the Father dwelling in us or even God dwelling in us. In, in Romans, you see how this, this, uh, this, this fluidity of expressions it comes out in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11. Notice the different expressions here. Uh, Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, so who dwells in you? Spirit of God. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, now wait, who is, who is in us? He says, if if the Spirit of God dwells in you, and then he says, no, it's the Spirit of Christ who dwells in you, and then he says, no, actually, it's Christ who dwells in you. He says, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised him from the dead dwells in you, now he's talking about the Spirit of the Father. So do you see the flexibility here because of the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Who dwells in you? Well, it's biblical to say, The one who raised Jesus from the dead, his spirit dwells in me. Or the spirit of Jesus dwells in me. Or the Holy Spirit dwells in me. Or Jesus dwells in me. And that's Paul's prayer for Christians in whom the spirit dwells, that the the spirit would dwell in us. In whom Christ dwells, that Christ would dwell in us. And he goes on from there. And there's this this, um, expression that the, the scholars puzzle over in verse 17 so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, through faith. And we saw that having believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so believing in Jesus, that's the, the, the means by which we, we come into possession of the Spirit. And then it says that you being rooted and grounded in love. And that we won't go into details, but grammatically, it's hard to figure out having been rooted and grounded in love, if it goes with what's before, with what's after, it doesn't line up grammatically with kind of anything here. And it may just be, Paul's just sort of interjecting, as he sometimes does, you all rooted and grounded in love. And here he picks up something that he's already done. He's mixing metaphors, isn't he? Rooted is what kind of a metaphor? It's an agricultural metaphor? 
And grounded is, is foundation, so an architectural metaphor. It's not the first time he's done that. Look at chapter, chapter 1, uh, verses 19 and 20. It says, uh, let's see, is that right? No, it's uh, chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So built, what kind of a metaphor is that? Christ himself being the cornerstone. Architectural, right? Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so here's the mixing of, of agricultural and architectural imagery. And he brings that out again. And he says, you all rooted and grounded in what? In love. If you ask the question, what's Ephesians about? One way to answer the question is, it's about love. It's about love. Chapters 1 to 3, the love of God for us. Chapters 4 to 6, our love for God and our love for each other. That's Ephesians. And he says, you're rooted and you're grounded in that love. And then he goes on to a further result, further result, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, verse 17, verse 18, that you may have strength, so strengthening, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay, so let's follow this train of thought. I bow my knees to the Father. I pray for you that you might be strengthened in the inner person by the Holy Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may comprehend the dimensions, the height, the depth, the width, the breadth, and that you may know the love of Christ. Now, there's something curious about this, because he doesn't say the dimensions of what? Some translations smooth this out, and they supply it for us, but he says here that you may comprehend, that you may grasp what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and we're crying out for what? Of what? The dimensions of what? He just says that you may know the dimensions. And you say, the dimensions of what? And then he says in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ. And so, as some translations, they probably correctly say, it's the dimensions of the love of Christ. You see, to grasp the dimensions is to know the love of Christ. And apparently these dimensions are so huge that they are difficult to grasp. And so difficult to grasp that, that we need the Holy Spirit to, to strengthen us in order to be able to grasp how, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And then there's an ironic aspect to this. Look at this, verse 19. To know the love of Christ that what? Surpasses knowledge. So what's he praying for here? He's praying for something that's beyond us. He's praying that we would know the unknowable, that we would know something that is beyond our ability to know. That's why we need strengthening. So to know the love of Christ is not, a, is not something that's within our possibility. The only way we can know the love of Christ, how, how vast it is, is if we have this strengthening by the Spirit, if Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, then we can be strengthened to know how great his love is for us. And then we have the final, the final result here at the end of verse 19. And this is not the first time that Paul seems to go too far in Ephesians. Um, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled, our text says here, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, other translations, which I think are, are better in this case, say that you may be filled to all the fullness 
of God. And, and uh, think about that. To be filled with, we can't be filled with all the fullness of God. We're not big enough for that fullness to fit in us. But the idea is filled unto. The goal is that you would be filled towards the fullness of God. And then we have to stop our, our, ourselves and say, what in the world can that possibly mean? What can that mean? Well, it's not the first time Paul has, has done one of these. Uh, what's the, the, the emoji where the, the head blows off? It's like, where it's, it's, it's beyond comprehension, blowing our minds, I guess, is the expression. Uh, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 23, he says this, uh, verse 22, and he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And there are many different tra- uh, ideas of what that meant, but we settled on, at least tentatively, that it means this. We decided that the church is the fullness of Christ. Why? Because Christ fills the church. And Christ is the fullness of God. Why? Because the, the fullness of deity, of Godhood, dwells in Christ. And so if that's the idea, if that interpretation is correct, and we go back to Ephesians 3.19, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? The fullness of God is Christ. That you may be filled to the, to the level of Christ that you may be filled to the measure of Christ. And we find that later on. And this, this checks with what we find in chapter 4, verse, verse 13, and a different image. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so as hard as these concepts might be, the, the idea is, is perhaps simple. It's to be more and more like Christ, to be more and more filled with Christ, to be more and more conformed to Christ, to, to, to be more and more moving in that direction of Christ, to be more and more people who, when, when others look at us, they say, you, you, you look like somebody I've heard of you. You remind me of somebody that I've read about, that I've heard about in history. I think I found it in Scripture. You, you remind me of that one who was called the Christ. I see, I see you brimming over with that one. Explain that to me. How is it that you, a mere mortal, can be oozing, can be overflowing, can be, can be abounding with Christ. You see, that's, that's the goal of this prayer. And then after that, Paul ends with a doxology. Doxology, the word doxology um, means a word of glory. And he ends with the word of glory. And, and he has taken us to such levels that... that, that that's kind of the only place you can end, right? Um, what he does here to conclude this, this prayer report and also to conclude chapters 1 to, uh, one to 3, this, this section about the love of God for us, he gives us this word of glory. And the first part of this word of glory describes God and the second part ascribes to God the glory that is due him. And notice how this flows. He has just asked the impossible, right? that we may know the unknowable. And we might say, um, excuse me, that, that doesn't seem possible. And then he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So he's just given this sort of re- impossible request and then he points to the one who can answer impossible requests. To the one who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think limited only by his own power and character, according to the power at work, 
His power at work within us. We've already seen that in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that the resurrection power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, is at work in His people. And He says, according to that level of power, He is able to do far more than we can ask or think. And then He ascribes praise to Him, ascribes glory to Him. He says that His glory is, and and here there's no verb in the original. It says, to Him be the glory as a wish. Um, That be is not there. You've got to provide some sort of a verb. It's to Him glory. So you can put be or is. To Him is the glory. To Him shall be the glory. To Him may it be the glory. But however that might be, the idea is to Him, He belongs, to Him belongs all the glory. And notice where that glory is shown. And here, once again, this is very, very surprising to us as we look at ourselves and say, we're not that big a deal. But it says, to Him be glory where? In the church. In the church. And in Christ Jesus. He puts those together. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. This is throughout uh, all generations of the age of the ages. So forever and ever. Where is the glory of God seen? In the church and in Christ. He puts those two together. And and, and this is this is quite remarkable. Uh, he um, Paul could not, not think about the Father and the Spirit apart from the Son. That was not possible. Paul could not conceive of Father and Spirit apart from the Son, or, or Father and Son apart from Spirit, or, 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 or Spirit and Son apart from Father. Impossible to, to, to separate God like that. And we see how this, this flexibility and fluidity of language keeps, keeps God as the, the one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But another thing that's perhaps even more surprising to us is that he could not think about Christ apart from the church. As the Father, Son, and Spirit are united, he could not think of Christ apart from the church. And so so the question is, where do we see the glory of God through all generations of the ages of the ages? And we would well, in Christ, that's where we see it. And Paul says, in the church and in Christ. You can't talk about the church without talking about Christ. You can't talk about Christ without talking about the church. And we need to follow Paul's example in both of these. In both of these. We need to come to God only through Christ. You see, we dare not go to God apart from Christ and apart from the power of the Spirit. You see, we don't have that access granted to us except in Christ. And so we ought not to conceive of God apart from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we also ought not to decapitate Christ by separating the head, which is Christ, from his body, which is the church. This is a united body, Christ the head, over his church. We've read amazing things about the church so far. In chapter 1, verse 22, we have read that God gave Christ the head of all things to the church. So the head of all things is the head of the church as well. That's convenient, isn't it? The head of the universe is also the head of the church. We read that. We also read that through the church, chapter 3, verse 10, through the church, the wisdom of God is manifested to the heavenly rulers. If the heavenly rulers, these these principalities, these angels, these demons, whatever they might be, if they want to ask, where can we see the wisdom of God? The answer is, look at the church. We've also seen that we grasp the immensity of the love of Christ 
along with the church. Look at verse 18. I jumped over this, but may, may we have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Did you see that? Where are we going to comprehend the breadth and height and, and depth and, and, and length of the love of Christ? With all the saints. We're not going to do it on our own. I, one of the advantages of riding around on my bicycle all the time is I, you notice things. When you walk or when you ride a bike, you notice things that you don't normally notice. And you're not going very fast. And so you can stop and, and talk to people. I stopped and talked to a man who was sitting in a wheelchair by the road the other day and got to just talking a little bit and asked him if he had a church. And he said, I have my own church. I have my own church. And that's a pretty good summary of Western Christianity, isn't it? I have my own church. I do my thing. I do my individual thing. And I thought, wow, he's not going to get very far in his knowledge of Christ because we can't comprehend the height and breadth and length and depth of the love of Christ apart from all the saints. We learn from the saints who have gone before us for generations. When we read and we hear about them, we learn from them. And we learn from each other. We're the ones who teach each other and show each other how great the love of Christ is. And now we find, this is kind of the capstone. We're going to come back to the church in chapter 5 when we talk about marriage. But now the capstone here is we learn that God's glory is forever evident in the church. Where can you see God's glory? Look at Christ and look at the church. That's where you see how glorious God is. Now we have, we have soared in these, these, uh, these first three chapters of Ephesians, haven't we? We have, we have gone into inexpressible, immeasurable, uh, unsearchable riches of glory, eternal of the ages of the ages, and we have talked about concepts that are, are well beyond our possibility to, to comprehend, and that's why we need this prayer. That's why we need to pray this for each other. If you say, I wonder what Larry needs prayer for. Just pull out Ephesians chapter 3. Pray this for me. Pray this for each other. This is what we need in order to comprehend the height and breadth and, and length and depth of the glory of the love of Christ we need. We need this strengthening. There, there was one attempt. Those of you who are my age-ish uh, maybe remember this. It circulated before the Internet. Yes, it was possible. Um, it circulated and, prob and still is on the Internet. I found it. I thought of it the other day. There was a sermon preached, I think many times, by a Dr. S.M. Lockridge back in the 70s. And uh, he died in, uh, in 2000. He was a prominent African-American pastor out in San Diego and uh, held revivals around. He, was, he, was, he preached around the world, but he, he preached an hour-long sermon. I'm not going to repeat the whole sermon here. Um, but, but he ended it. He ended it with this, this ex, I'm going to give you an excerpt of his sermon. And this, this excerpt is one of the most eloquent and best efforts that I have found in human language, apart from scripture, to, to manifest how high and deep and wide and long it, it is the, the glory of the love of Christ. It's often called my king. My king. Maybe you'll remember it, some of you. He said this, my king was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? 
David said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. My king is the only one of whom there are no means of measure that can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of salvation. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. Well, he's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He's strong God and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of peace. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah, yeah, that's my king. My king, yeah. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah, he's always been and always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. That's my king. That's my king. Thine, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Well, all the power belongs to my king. We're around here talking about black power and white power and green power, but it's God's power. Thine is the power. Yay, and the glory. We try to get prestige and honor and glory for ourselves, but the king of glory, it's all his. Yes, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? and ever, and ever, and ever, and when you get through with all the forevers, then, amen. Let's pray. That's my king. That's our king, Lord Jesus. 
Lord Jesus, beyond description, but we thank you for this description, this eloquent description of the height and breadth and length and depth of your glory and your love. And, oh God, we pray for power with all the saints to grasp the dimensions of your love and to know the the power of the love of Christ that is beyond our comprehension. And you, O God, who are able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, may your glory be evident in us through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. Amen.